Welcome to the podcast. I appreciate you for being here. Before we listen to my next guest, I want to ask that if you like the podcast, please subscribe to the channel and leave a positive review so we can grow this channel. I've been working really hard for you guys to grow by putting systems in place that bring on guests who are very valuable to you. And I'm just going to be honest, it hasn't been an easy ride. So I would certainly appreciate your support. Also, let me know your thoughts by texting me at 714-294-0269. Again, 714-294-0269. Zero two six nine. Last time, seven one four two nine four zero two six nine. To ask about details and to receive future podcasts directly to your cell phone. Let's continue with the podcast. All right. So I'm here with Nick, and uh, Nick, you have a really interesting story. Uh, you've gone through a lot of hardships. You've gone through uh, a lot of things that most people would uh, would would cause most people to quit. Um, tell me a little bit about your early beginnings and then we'll kind of flesh out your story as we progress. Well, sure. I'm happy to do that. Uh, thanks. And look, I don't think it's, 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 we'll get to the end where there's some special challenges that I've had to confront recently, but I think like anyone, uh, you know, you, you always, it's interesting. I, I do believe there's an attitude about perseverance and, you know, there's a quote that's attributed to Vince Lombardi. He may or may not have ever said it which is, you know, fatigue makes cowards of us all. Yeah. And, you know, and, and, and it's not physical fatigue, right? Because fatigue is more of an attitude. And, and the, the flip side of that to me is courage. Right. And, you know, it's not courage like I'm going to jump over a wall while people are shooting. I mean, that's a special kind of courage. But the kind of courage, and it's interesting, my father sort of had this expression where he said, many great things go undone for want of a little courage. Mm. And, you know, and people have, you know, and that's really inspired me often that uh, thinking about, you know, daring to be great, right, which is something that, you know, that's a book by Gary Trudeau, Dare to be Great, right? And, and, and a lot of times that's what it takes. It's, it's, you know, the effort, the focus, the energy, you know, you, you have it, but you have to muster it and you have to focus it. And a lot of people just, just don't do it, right? And, right? and I think it does come down to that sense of, of uh, perseverance and, and courage to, to do the things, right? And, right. you know, I know we'll go back and forth in time a little bit, but I think, you know, kind of in Silicon Valley, there's this sense about, you know, just go ahead and leap and, and you know, do all these things. But, but I think, again, it's something that's attributed to Steve Jobs where he said, well, uh, a real venture capitalist or a real entrepreneur is someone who says no, Right? You have, have to have the courage to know that when you choose something, you're saying no to everything else. Right. Right. And, and that's a, a lot of people don't really understand the challenge of that. Like, well, what do you mean? Well, if you're going to do this full time, well, guess what? You know, you don't get to do a lot of other things. Right. right. So, so for me, I think the, the, I started off, I went to graduate school. I, I got an MBA um, from, from a well-known Eastern business school. Right. And, and you could, and I started on wall street. And it was a, it was a good job, right? You, you were, there I was 27, 28 years old, getting highly paid. This is kind of a great gig. So like the first sense of, if you will, perseverance is to kind of recognize, well, this doesn't make me happy. Right. And, and, and I've got friends who continue to do that to this day and it makes them very happy and that's fine. It just wasn't for me. Right. And, and I think that's the, the first element of any sense of perseverance that we want to talk about or resilience. 
is to understand, well, what's right for me? Yeah. Regardless of the headline, right? Sure. And so being able to sort of say, well, I'm going to strike out on my own. I'm going to be with other people and I'm going to kind of leave this behind. Sure. Uh, that's, that's a challenge. Right? So, and, yeah. So we, you got you, so you said Eastern school, you got an MBA at Harvard. That's correct. Okay. So, and then you worked as an associate at Goldman Sachs. Correct. Okay. And so during that experience, what made you not happy in in doing so? Yeah, I think it, you know, it wasn't so much being unhappy. It was, but this isn't just quite for me because uh, again, it's a great headline, right? Hi, you know, I work for Goldman Sachs, right? Um, which is a great firm and I'm, I'm still close friends with many people who, who work there or still work there. But, sure. but the thing for me, I think the difference is you kind of go, well, this is just not me. And, uh, you know, later uh, I had an experience where I was teaching at the UCLA business school, you know, just a class uh, one quarter a year. Right. And, and students, they don't want to, they don't want knowledge of my career advice. Right. And I'm, I'm fine with that. But my, so here's my two bits of career advice. I call it the alarm clock test and the cocktail party test. So the alarm clock test is, right, you wake up and you haven't gotten enough sleep. Now you got to go do your thing. Are you happy about that? Are you excited about that? Or you're like, well, here we go. Um, and then, of course, the cocktail party test. When someone comes up to you and says, hey, what do you do? Like, well, how do you feel about what you do? Right? Because these are situations where you don't really get a filter. And so for me, it was... I think I can be contributing more. I don't necessarily want to be an agent. This was back in the day when Goldman Sachs was just an intermediary, right? So, okay, fine. I'm helping other people do interesting things, important things with the capital that we're raising for them. But I think I kind of want to be one of those guys having, doing something impactful with a business. Sure. And so that was the, the, if you will, the thing I wanted to do more. It wasn't so much hated being there, uh, although the hours were gruesome and all that, but, but I, I wanted to really be on the side that had more responsibility for building a business, being impactful with, with, with industry in some way. When you say building a business, do you mean in terms of working with a startup as opposed yeah. to like a bigger uh, conglomerate? Yeah, it really was um, a, a kind of a feeling. I had friends who, who were involved in the technology industry even back then, you know, in the stone age when, um, you know, you had the, uh, and that always excited me, we, you know, people sort of looking at technology and the impact that technology could have. And, you know, if you look at the transition, you know, we had some transitions that people aren't even aware of, but, or at least these days, because we're, we're such dinosaurs, uh, the people who have that knowledge, right? So there were transitions in, in chip design, integrated circuit design that made, made dramatic impacts. Uh, and even, you know, today, the president of Stanford, John Hennessy, one of his chip designs, uh, structures called the RISC chip, R-I-S-C. The RISC design was something that w- w- he really developed early on uh, in the 1980s to 1990s. Right? And, and, and this was made a dramatic impact. Um, and I, I, th- I found that very exciting and to see how you could uh, be part of things that, that were really changing. You know, we talk about disruption today. Well, you know, there were industries being disrupted for a while, right? And technology d- disrupts things. And so you know, I found that exciting and wanted, wanted to be part of that. That was just much more interesting to me. 
Do you think that's like, uh, it was, it's just in your DNA to work with companies that are growing as opposed to like a big company that's already like really, really established. Um, do you think it's just part of your DNA or do you just, I don't know, you just have a proclivity for whatever reason, um, to working. Yeah. You know, I, I think it's, I think it's part of your DNA and, you know, I, I have friends who are very happy in the large corporate environment. Um, and I, I am not happy yeah. in that environment, right? But, and I, you know, it's funny, I, I do have these philosophies, I guess being half Greek, you know, my dad's Greek, you're, I'm philosophical, right? So uh, I think that you don't choose your industry, it chooses you, if you pay attention. Uh, by the way, I think, I think the same thing is true in life in general, like, you know, whether you play a musical instrument or play a sport, it chooses you. You just have an ability and you have a natural love for things that yeah. just maybe don't make any sense, but it's what you love to do. And I think in this case, you know, this has sort of chosen me. It's something I love to do. And you know, I just came back from a lunch meeting with an executive who's launching a new business. And, and that's just very exciting to talk about that, to talk about the possibilities and, and you know, and what, what can happen. Um, and, you know, dealing with what can go wrong, which, you know, I can philosophize about a lot when I hear a lot of business, you know, this a little bit of freeform discussion here, but I hear a lot of business plans. And most of the business plans tell me all the things that are going to go right. And, you know, when things go right, you know, you don't have to be that talented to run it. Right. Uh, when it's when things go wrong, right? And now we know this. So um, this is advice for anyone pitching a business. Tell me the things that are going to go wrong and how you're going to deal with them. You're not going to think of all of them. And the point is not that you've thought of all of them. The point is, how do you think? In other right. words, hey, this doesn't go well, here's what we do. We, we establish new metrics. We think about you know, the addressable market. We think about kind of whatever, whatever our manufacturing sales, distribution, whatever our strategies are, we kind of, you know, we look at all those things. And, and believe me, things will go wrong, right? And it's, that's the important thing. When, when you can frame the risk, right. right? So, hey, the market exists, it's there, it's proven, we've got something that's an order of magnitude better. That's why we can compete. So now it becomes an implementation risk. So frame that for me. What are the issues you're going to have? Or this is a new market. We have to get people to buy this thing. Are people really gonna want a smartphone? Well, you know, the incumbent Nokia didn't think so. Somebody else did, right? So uh, what is it that you see that somebody's not seeing? Uh, why, do you, why do you think these, these incumbent companies, they don't see things that are very clear as day to, to other people? Yeah, you know, there's a real challenge there. I mean, I, I know that uh, actually one of my former professors, uh, Clayton Christensen, you know, who just passed away recently, you know, he talked about the kind of, you know, the innovator's dilemma. And you know, we talk about creative destruction. So let's be clear. Everyone focuses on the creative side. You forget the destructive side. Something's being destroyed. Okay? You're running a business and you're saying, oh, by the way, we're going to destroy the thing that makes us <laughs> Right, because we yeah. think something better is, is is a real possibility. Yeah, that's really hard to do. Right, just just try to pull that off. And there were very few people who could pull it off. A guy like Andy Grove, you know, he pulled it off with Intel when they were making DRAM, which was a large percentage of their revenue. And he just said, "We're getting out of this business because this is the margins aren't there, the growth isn't there, and you know, you know, you try to convince your shareholders. Oh, by the way, forty percent of our revenue. Yeah, it's not so important anymore." Really? Mm. You know, try to keep your job and do that. And 
and that's the, like the challenge. Um, it, it's almost, again, being a bit philosophical. It's like, well, you've got to wait for a crisis before anyone wants to make a change. And that's, that's what makes most larger companies vulnerable though, right? Is yeah. they, they're just so sl- uh, slow to, to progress or growth that it's, it's usually too late before they make a decision to, to change something. I, um, think right. I mean, I think that's right. That, that, and it's why entrepreneurs have careers, right? Yeah. 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 True. And one of the things, I mean, I tell people this, this will basically, this is going to happen to just about everybody there'll be a very smart individual who will have very good reasons why you're wrong. And in a corporate setting, that man or woman gets a platform. Right. And, and, and it's just hard to kind of really say, you know, yeah, maybe all those assumptions are correct, but you have to think differently. And convincing people to really do that and really embrace that. But I still love this anecdote that, I think it was in 2005, I could get my dates wrong, but, but the CEO of Verizon at a conference literally said, Apple will never make a phone. And he mm. gave all the reasons why Apple could not make a phone. And wow. they're going, okay, there's the CEO of Verizon. He knows what he's talking about. And, and, and so that's an example of what's on a smaller scale, what's going to happen to every entrepreneur. There will be a knowledgeable, informed person who will tell you why you're wrong. And that's why entrepreneurs have an opportunity. Well, it's kind of like the um, going through the venture process as an entrepreneur. It's like when when you when you're in front of like a venture capitalist or a family office or whatever whatever have you. Normally, those those guys will tell you exactly why your company is going to fail, <laughs> and you'll hear that multiple times. You know, hundreds sometimes hundreds of times. Uh, you know going through that process. And I, and I always say it's like akin to a model going to a bunch of agencies and, and the agencies telling the model exactly why the model is not going to fulfill the role because, and exactly why she's too ugly to fulfill that role. And I feel like that's, that's, <laughs> that's why, uh, that, that's, uh, the process that entrepreneurs go through. And, yeah. uh, yeah, I and, really do. Th- I, I, there is something to that. I mean, you know, we love all these anecdotes, like, you know, every record company turned down the Beatles. Yeah. Right, you know, until Decker yeah. got a second chance at him, uh, and uh, there's all those kinds of anecdotes, and and it's all true, right? And yeah, there, you know, there comes, and you know, we we we've always, we, I actually at lunch we were just talking about this, like how many great opportunities really just never got developed because you know there was just too much, we'll call it, you know, too many barriers that that existed that really maybe not not don't exist today. So for instance. You know, look, look at them, and I love to tell these examples where you had, if you came to me and say, well, I'm going to compete as a razor blade company, right? I'm going to compete with Gillette and with Schick. I'd say, you know, you're insane, right? Because the way the industry worked, you had to have shelf space and, you know, let's talk about slotting fees. Let's talk about distribution, marketing sales. But then all of a sudden, Dollar Shave Club comes along and Harry's comes along because they have a different way of distributing. Mm. And the whole incumbency in the industry looked at that and said, well, that makes no sense because this is how we do, we do it. And we do it quite well. Like these companies are very profitable. And they, and they're saying, well, you, you know, you can't, you can't, we're just all marketing anyway. You can't convince somebody that right. they should, you know, but guess what? It happened. Right. And, and we're seeing more and more of that. There's, there's ways to reach uh, a market now that uh, is being fundamentally changed. And that's one of the exciting things about what we'll call it the disruption that's happening today, just to kind of, come forward where you think about 
well, even you know, areas that I find very interesting, think about fintech, where you know, now there's this, you, you've got a bank in your pocket. <laughs> and you, you know, and, and, and I, I still remember going to China uh, 20 years ago when you know, there was no free exchange of currency and you know, it was really kind of a crazy way to try to do, do any kind of business or commerce in China. You know, now I'm, I'm paying the little dumpling lady on the side of the street with, with a, a WeChat app. Yeah, it's kind of crazy. I mean, there's no, you know, there's no cash in China, right? I mean, it's all just, it, it, yeah. it's that, right? And that's just one example um, of, of real disruption and banking is fundamentally being disrupted. Um, and it's a great opportunity because that is the engine of prosperity. And, you know, you've got ways to create finance and, and people who are unbanked. I mean, I've, oh, now one more observation about, let's just say the, what's the best, the most effective social program for the continent of Africa in the last 30 years. And I don't care what other charities may do good work. They, there are some that do good work. Uh, there's a recent, recent study that shows whenever money's given, uh, Swiss bank account balances go up. So we kind of know what happens, but I would argue that it's the mobile phone. And the reason for that is you have unprecedented communication, but commerce and banking that is now enabled by, of people that would never otherwise be able to do that because of the infrastructure that lacks that's lacking there. So you have fishermen that can now be out on their boats and know where the best prices are for the fish they're going to bring in. You've got farmers who know what markets to go to that they would otherwise just have to get in there, you know, their horse and buggy and go over there and see if they could sell their goods or not. Now they know what the prices are and they know where to go. And there's banking going on, you know, the, the mobile app Mpasa. Right? Yeah. Uh, Right? And this, this, is, this is really changing people's lives. And I, I think it's, it's, that's an example of how technology can be very impactful with all these kinds of applications. And that's another area that excites me a lot and, you know, kind of we'll call it fintech in general, but the ability to bring finance to most of the globe that lacks it can have a, a real impact that, that I think could be substantial. That, that, so things like that really excite me. Disruptive things. What, what do you see? Uh, what, what in the fintech field do you see being disruptive in the future? Well, you know, I think, uh, you know, first and foremost, banking infrastructure, literally yeah. you know, bricks and mortar, right? That is seemingly unnecessary. Mm-hmm. And then you have the movement of cash uh, across borders, which not till not too long ago was really difficult, challenging to do in many cases, almost impossible to do. Now you're seeing sort of a seamless transition. So you're seeing, you know, the movement of capital, that capital now being available for, for investment and other purposes. And, you know, we've seen it obviously with Ant Financial and Alipay in China, but we're seeing it with, uh, with, with PayPal here in the United States where they're understanding that there's a cash accumulation that can happen. And all of a sudden you've got people with, capital in very different sources. And that spirals into financial services and other things that are now available to many more people. And then you layer on top of that, the knowledge that you have about any particular borrower, um, where you now understand much more about that borrower. So there's, there's timing efficacy, um, a broader market that's applicable. A lot of those things are, I, I find you know, really interesting. And it can be like truly disruptive. So you have, you have unbanked people that have a way to accumulate cash and use that cash. Um, that that's a it, business becomes more efficient. A lot of other, a lot of very good things happen 
when people have availability of credit and availability of the capital. And, and this, is, this is driving that. Yeah, it's it's pretty uh, pretty extraordinary what's what's coming out lately, um, like th- things like Cash App and things things of that nature. Um, uh, and so, okay, any other field besides banking, you see this making uh, being uh, uh, you know, technology being very disruptive. Well, you know, I, I it's interesting. I, I, I do want to temper what we mean by disruption. I actually wrote an article a few months ago that said, well, if you really want to talk about disruption, go back not too long ago, and within a short span, like within a 20-year span, we had, you know, the, the airplane, you know, the, the automobile. <laughs> True. Uh, you know, we had the first vaccines. You know, you know we, we had uh, the telephone. We had the radio. We had all of this in a very short amount of time. And now that's disruptive. That changed, changed people's lives in a dramatic fashion. You know, the electrical grid. You know, all that is in a very, it's just like in a 30-year period. And so that's real disruption, right? So sometimes I, I sort of get cynical and I go, okay, you're going to deliver somebody's groceries more efficiently. Okay, you know, fine. But that's maybe a company's being disrupted. And I think that's my point. Companies may be disrupted. Uh, maybe there are some incumbents being disrupted by newcomers. But how are you disrupting society? Right? Mm. That's a that that is a just a different uh, standard to me, right? So, um, so I think some of the people who say they're disruptors, they're kind of overstating themselves. But when I look at fintech and I think, okay, global capitalization, that is a disruptive engine because that enables people to be very creative and do very specific things that would otherwise not be uh, even be possible. But other areas, I mean, an area that I spend a lot of time in, I you know, I have some training in artificial intelligence and in computer science. And so artificial intelligence is a tool. And so when people say artificial intelligence is disrupting things, yes, it is. And it can be a very effective tool. I, I'm a more of an optimist on a tool to make people better. I don't think it's coming for you know 50% of all attorneys' jobs or things like that, which I read about. Um, you know, very credible studies have, you know, are kind of draconian as to what machine automation can do. I'm a little bit more sanguine on, on a symbiotic relationship. And I think that, and for instance, you know, I, have a, I have a nephew who works in the medical field and suddenly he is a much better radiologist because an AI tool oh, that's looked at yeah. a million scans can help him you know, be more effective. But he still has to deal with the patient, right? And, and so it, it raises the bar for people. Um, in drug discovery, another area that, that um, you know, I, I've written about recently where, you know, tools for artificial intelligence, but for other, and, and other, honestly, other cryptography tools are kind of, it's a fascinating main field where we can see, well, what's really causal in sort of disease and drug development. Um, so I, I think that. Yeah, I love that. I love that aspect of, of uh, what's being done in healthcare for sure. Yeah. Um, because yeah, you said, you said the, the operative word is causal, you know, what causes cer- certain ailments and right. a lot of, a lot of the, these elements aren't addressed at, at the root cause, um, right. which is unfortunate. And I think that's how most healthcare is run. Do you, do you to some extent agree with that? I, I, I do. Yeah. Uh, you know, and I, and I think that, that, you know, looking for efficiencies, but looking for knowledge and areas. And you know, here's a couple of areas, right? So, so the coronavirus, right, which is getting, you know, a lot of attention. 
Well, there's a lot of knowledge and database that exists around these kinds of viruses. And I know Gilead had tried to address a coronavirus in the past. They have a database and they're wondering whether or not it can be effective here. And, and whether or not it is, you'd like to see those tools there that can be more readily available. Um, another area, uh, when we look at Alzheimer's disease, one of the issues in treating Alzheimer's disease, as, as some people know, is, well, you know, there's the blood-brain barrier. And so a lot of potential therapies, which may actually be effective, just can't get to the area of the brain that's affected because of the blood-brain barrier. Yeah. And so now there's all sorts of other data that can say, well, you know, there's a way to do that because we did it in another area that had nothing to do with any of this and, and people can't get access to that data, but now you're seeing ways to access it. And so access to information. So if, if there's a theme around disruption, one of those themes is, you know, accessing, a, uh, enabling a global market access to, I'll call it kind of a, an, an engine for prosperity. So that's FinTech access kind of on a global market to information about, about health, health data, health care. I mean, one of the things I think can really be disruptive about healthcare is that artificial intelligence can create localized clinics that can, via an AI tool, screen a lot of patients for kind of the basic stuff, right? As you know, you, you know, emergency rooms are clogged. You don't necessarily have access to a lot of care, but you can go to a place there's a lot of processing that can go through and the handful that really need attention can be directed to that attention, but most people can, you know, can be diagnosed and treated, you know, fairly effectively for most things. And this is a tool that can really enable that. Um, so I think efficiency and, and efficacy with, with healthcare is something where AI can be disruptive. So the healthcare area in general is, is worthy of disruption. And I think, um, I think there, there, there's, that's an area that's very exciting to me. It's such a slow-moving industry as well. Like, like yeah, so here's just, you know, an example. Uh, slow, so slow-moving, and and because you know we want to do a you know a double-blind trial to really understand kind of causality. But you know, I brought this up in the article where you'd say, okay, we know that obesity can lead to um, diabetes. We also know that vitamin D deficiency can lead to obesity. We, we've seen these in studies. So does vitamin D deficiency lead to diabetes? We don't know. Right? Mm. And, and you look at it and say, okay, there should be a way to look at all this data and not have to do a five-year trial to figure that out, right? Because there are people who can really benefit, right? So there's an unmet medical need and we have a standard of, a standard of trial and standard of care, but I'm saying, okay, we need to disrupt that. Because we just can't wait so many years before somebody figures out, yeah, all that data that we sensed was true. Well, it's actually true. I, I'd like to see more efficacy with that. There's this doctor, I think it was, I think it was Dr. Merrick, or, um, but he uh, discovered a cure for sepsis. Uh -huh. And uh, I believe it's Dr. Merrick. And uh, it was essentially it was intravenous vitamin C along with um, some uh, like steroid um, and he was finding that in like 90% of, of circumstances, he was able to cure people of sepsis and these people would normally die. There was one situation where there was a guy who was and mentally, he, he checked out with this particular circumstance because he knew this guy had no, very little chance. So he's like, might as well try this other uh, intravenous vitamin C. 
he did that and the guy was alive the next day and he was, and now they treat all their patients in that particular hospital. But there's a lot of people out there that are, and he's, he's a MD, but there's a lot of people out there that are kind of disparaging him in, in a sense, because, okay. you know, they're saying, oh, there's the clinical trials haven't been done and he's like saving lives. So that's, yeah. you know, yeah, you know, and, 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 you know, there's, and I certainly don't want to put down the value of, you know, a true double blind clinical trial. Oh, of course. Yeah. Right? But, you know, but we had the example, I mean, Genentech went through this because they developed uh, a treatment for breast cancer. One of the, what the, the initial treatment that had real efficacy and, you know, the FDA is like, well, you know, got to go through all these trials, you know, to, before we can approve anything, you know, there are women who are dying and, and, you know, you're too young to remember this, but there were people picketing, Rightfully so, in front of Genentech, and the poor Genentech CEO is being vilified, and he's like, "Well, I can't, you know, do anything. These are the rules, and I can't violate those rules if I'm going to be in this industry." And finally, they said, "Well, gee, like you say, well, gee, people are dying. Maybe we should think differently about this." Yeah. And so, I'd like to see, you know, real tools in, in people's hands that can help. So I think that that's another area uh, that's particularly interesting to me. Really quick, because it's just a thought that just jumped in my head, but I'll, we'll go, we'll jump to after this, we'll jump yeah. to like your, more of your story. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, when you say that a lot of your friends at the Goldman Sachs enjoy their jobs, would you say most of them enjoy their jobs? Because what, you know, this is kind of, you know, a tangent a little bit, but what I find is that 70, 80% of people do, do not enjoy their jobs. Um, yeah, and I, I don't think that's specific to Goldman Sachs. Um, but you're yeah. right. I think that, that you, know, other, you know, there is the quote about living lives of quiet desperation, right? Yeah. That, uh, and I certainly have many of my attorney friends who I would say don't really necessarily love their job either. Um, but, you know, to comment on that, I mean, you do find that, you know, and maybe this gets down to courage as well, but it's very difficult when, Okay, you're being paid pretty highly. Um, you have responsibilities, financial responsibilities. Maybe you have a spouse, children, whatever it is. And suddenly the idea of changing, um, you know, whatever your income level is, right? It doesn't matter. I mean, you're going to potentially impact that income. Uh, and it's a real risk and it's a real challenge to do. I, I think that, that it, it's just, it's not easy. And so, you know, some people, you know, maybe most people say, well, I'll just accept these circumstances because it kind of keeps my family supported and it's what I, what I choose to do. Um, for those who don't have that constraint, I think many people, you know, just we fear change, right? And, and when you sit down and say, well, what do I really want to do? Uh, I think it gets confusing for people. Uh, they don't necessarily right. have to answer that. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think that that's a challenge. Um, and, and, you know, being thoughtful and meticulous about where you, where your life should go. I mean, it's, it, you know, it's interesting. And I, and I think, especially now, you know, we sort of go through, I know my, you know, it's a generational, like my father, you know, he came out of school and, you know, he was a, an aeronautical engineer and that was going to be his career. And it was his career. You know, he loved it and that's fine. But, but now if you come out with any kind of skill like that, you could be doing anything. You'd be working on drones. You could be working on computer networks. You'd be, you know, there's so many opportunities yeah. and, and even things that, that I, I do for a living now. I mean, they didn't exist when I came out of school, right? 
So now we have so many options and the thought of like one singular career uh, seems a little, you know, anachronistic almost. It's like, well, you can do this, you can do that. Um, you can take a, a break, maybe go into yeah. academia, teach a little bit. You can come back, do something else. You know, so there's, there are these vibrant opportunities, but again, opportunities, I mean, let's just go, go back to machine learning and artificial intelligence as a real applicable tool. You know, that, that didn't exist not too long ago. Yeah. And, you know, when I studied it in school, which was a long time ago, it was always just theoretical because we, we, we said, well, you could never have this kind of processing power and you could mm. never have this much data, right? It just, in <laughs> 1980, that just, you just can't have it. So it's just a mathematical theory. <laughs> uh, guess what? <laughs> you know, we now have that. You data, guys have, uh, that there, wasn't a, there wasn't a terabyte in the 80s. I'm sure. yeah, right. <laughs> I still remember, you know, there's, again, it's an anecdote when I, I guess one of the first IBM PCs had 256K of memory, right? Yeah. Sort of, the, sort of the, you know, the Apple, right? 256K. And people were wondering, well, can, can you ever use all that memory? I mean, right? Yeah, yeah. So it's very quaint to think about that now, but, but uh, it, it, <laughs> we'll find ways to use it. And even when you think about these networks, the infrastructure, people go, well, do people really need those kinds of speeds, whether it's 5G or whatever they're talking about or whether it's yeah. landlines? And then the answer is, well, you know, there are businesses that you would never envision that can exist because of those speeds. And, and you know, Netflix the, the power of, of Google and Facebook, they exist because of high-speed wireless networks. Yeah. And, right? and before that, people wondered if we needed high-speed wireless networks. Well, you know, uh, things can, interesting things can happen that you would never have foreseen. But giving people tools, and that's my, my AI yeah. story, is you're giving people a powerful tool, let them go. Great things yeah. will happen, and we can't envision many of those things even now. I, I remember my uncle bought, like, a computer, like, in the 90s that was – uh, very primitive now. It was very primitive now, but in the nineties, it was like five grand and you could probably something, you could probably buy something comparable for like maybe five bucks. <laughs> right, <laughs> now, right. Like, you know, and, the, you know, and the fact that you have, uh, you know, this, this supercomputer basically in your pocket. Yeah. Amazing thing. And, and you no, know, actually I had a, my, uh, one of my uh, MIT professors had a great comment he said, people don't realize that your phone is now a material transformation device. Oh, He's yeah. Like, you touch a button, you get a car, right? Yeah. Uber shows up. You know, you touch a button, you get your groceries. You touch a button, you get a, a movie. You and, you know, and it's sort of a really interesting way to think about it. It's very Star trek and I kind of like it that way, right? <laughs> yeah. It's very appealing. It's like it really is a material transformation device that can conjure up kind of anything. Uh, right. And, and, and that – that is a, a level of power that uh, I don't think even the designers really fully understood. And as we give that device more power to generate, um, you know, more business ideas, opportunities, you know, communications, communications networks, the ability to kind of create a platform of speed and efficiency, that, that, that creates, you know, creates interesting business models. We, we've seen them develop. Interesting. Uh, okay. So, what so have you for for most of your career have you been an investor? Yeah, an, an investor most of my career. Um, yeah. I've also kind of coupled that with being an entrepreneur, I and mean, I've co-founded a couple of businesses, but but I've invested in those businesses as well. So the 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 business you were part of that you co-founded, what were those? What did, what was entailed in those businesses? Well, they were um, 
Well, one was a biotechnology, well, actually two were biotechnology companies. Um, and uh, most of them were, were technology companies that were communications businesses, kind of the, the area that I'm talking about. Um, and, uh, uh, and one was sort of a software, software as a service kind of business as well. Um, and so those were really with groups of people who were great, either scientists or technicians. They had some interesting ideas. And, right. and, and I, I mean, I just basically contributed more of a business perspective. You know, to be clear, man, I'm not a technologist. Uh, I don't view myself as a technologist. I've just been around technology. I've been around science. Yeah. So thinking of the business applications, is, that's something that I really enjoy, which is, okay, you know, technology is not a company. Technology is not a business. Uh, but technology is a way to create a service or a product. And, and what is the most effective thing to be done? That, that's, that's very useful. That's, that's kind of the way I like to think about things. Okay. And to what level did you grow those, those two companies to? And what were the, the main challenges you had in those, being part of those companies? Yeah, you know, I think the, um, so challenges, uh, well, both of those companies grew into substantial, well, two, two companies grew into substantial entities, uh, which are now part of the business Fortinet, which is a public company, and Barracuda Networks, which is a public company. Um, the uh, other companies are still private, um, but they're still around. So they, they grew, we grew from three or four employees. Uh, in one case, uh, you know, over a thousand employees, um, even the private biotech companies where you can do a lot of things virtually, uh, you know, they still have 50 employees. Um, and some, uh, and that, no, that's the other thing that communications enables, especially in, in, the, in the field of medicine, specifically biotechnology, another company that is, you can have seven, eight employees and be developing a series of drugs together because mm. you networked to the researchers and the academic institutions and other people doing their work really as contractors. So that, that's a model, the, the virtual biotech company is a very interesting model that, that's emerged over the last few years as well. Um, and so I find that particularly exciting just uh, to make a note of that. But the challenges, as you were mentioning, you know, you know, you have these technical challenges where you're, you're trying to do something that you think can be, enable a breakthrough. Um, and so here, you've got two challenges to that. One is actually doing it, which people think that's the only challenge, but it's not because getting the technical breakthrough and then sustaining the advantage. Because one of the things, and it was actually, you know, to drop a name, it was, you know, Vinod Kosla told us in a meeting once where he said, look, People have been working on this for years. You're going to break. You're going to make the breakthrough, and if you do, then everyone else will realize it can be done, and you'll see everybody else being able to do it afterwards. I mean, it's this amazing dimension of of, of humanity, where as soon as you find out it can be done, somehow other people are just able to do it more effectively. It's it's truly amazing, right? So it really comes down to a belief, right? But he, that's the real challenge, though. When you come up with an innovation, then people realize, well, I can do that too. And you really wonder sustaining your, your position is a real challenge. Okay, so that was one. Um, and the way you do that is with differentiated services and, and real value add. It's not, you find out the world cares a lot less about the specific technical advantage you have. Oh, yeah. Or about right, the value. Uh, that's the problem of every like, um, technical person is, that, is when, they, when they go into a sales role is like explaining the benefits and the features as opposed to the 
the uh, the details and um, of how it's put together, uh, any particular product. So, um, you know, we really do have that. I mean, that's another challenge you have, right? As you're building and you've got sales and marketing, you've got engineering, and you know, the the engineers really like. And I understand this. Well, they'll say, well, the product meets its specifications, and these product whatever we are offering is really effective and powerful. So everyone should just buy it. Uh-huh. People just buying it. Yeah. Like, well, okay, doesn't quite work that way, right? <laughs> and you know, we tell you, you know, you can't escape human nature. I mean, you've got to sell things. You've got to, you know, there's you, you need relationships, you need all those things, and 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 that's that is we'll call it the other real challenge that that you know to kind of sum it up when when you're growing a business, you're starting a business, you're essentially a, a research and development company. Then you've actually made a product. Now you've got to introduce that product into the market, right? So now you're launching into a new market. Well, then you've got to grow that business. And then you've got to introduce follow-on products or follow-on services. Now you reach a point, if you're successful, you reach a point where you've got critical mass. And now it's like, well, what is our real business? You're defining it. Well, just because we launched one way, what do we have now? I mean, the best example is, Amazon. Well, we're selling books. Well, guess what? If we can sell you a book, we can sell you a lot of other things. You know, they figured that out, right? So, uh, and then once you have these different positions, now you've got competition, you've got new entrants, you've got a lot of things that uh, are really challenging. And each of those stages is a very different company. And so think about managing that. I mean, it's one of the reasons why many CEOs are replaced. It's not because they lack competence at what they can do. This is that you're given a new set of tasks that you've never done before. And it's very hard to be competent. And so someone like, you know, these CEOs, you know, we all, we all know the, the banner names, but somebody like a Jeff Bezos or, or even Mark Zuckerberg or, you know, Reed Hastings, any of these guys that could bring their companies through all these transitions and still be effective CEOs are pretty unique individuals. Many really? people do not do that. Really? You think and so? Yeah, I, I think so. I, I really, uh, it, it's a, it's a real, you know, you've got, you, you manage a group of, of, of engineers doing research and development. Now suddenly manage five product launches in <laughs> um, four different continents and a marketing plan for that. And a staff of sales, marketing, distribution. Oh man, and, that's why. And, yeah. Right? It's a very different set of skills and, and, you know, people t- can grow into those for sure. And they have, right. But, it's not easy. And, and, and these are great challenges to continue to manage that. And, and, and then it, it, my role was typically a board member when you think, okay, do we need to transition management to different people? That's never easy. And, you know, and you have to do it sometimes, you, you know, you don't like doing yeah. it, but it's for, you know, for the, it's very tough because these people have, you know, careers and they've developed their careers with you and you have to sometimes let them go. Right. Which is tough. Right. It, 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 it's, it's really hard. Um, and it takes a long, it takes a lot of fortitude to do that. And, you know, it sometimes it is necessary sometimes. And uh, yeah, you've, you've gone, you've gotten to know these people that, you know, chances are they're your friends uh, as well. And, and you've gone through a lot. Now you've got to deliver a message that says yeah. as skilled and accomplished as you are and all the great things that you've accomplished right now, you've taken this company from an idea, you know, on a PowerPoint slide, to 30 million of revenue. That's amazing. Except we don't think you can get this company to 250 million of revenue and we need to do that. And you're not the guy. Oh man. Yeah. 
right? Can they de- can they can they develop the skill set to to do that, or is it it's just the speed is everything, and we just need to find the person that has experience? Yeah, you know, you really it, it, you know the answer is kind of yes to both, and I think a lot of that comes down to, and one of the shortcomings I think, yeah. uh, you know, when I fall into this category of people with great shortcomings in dealing with management teams is you tend to become too passive. Like you show up for a board meeting, you listen attentively, you say what you hope are some relatively clever things, but that's not that helpful. Hmm. You know, unless you get somebody to think about doing something differently, changing what they're doing or thinking more deeply about what they're trying to do, you know, really coaching, really kind of, you know, they call it mentoring, but you're, you know, you're really teaching or you're trying to create an environment of learning. Probably it's a better way of putting it. And not enough people do that, who play those roles. There are not enough, I mean, I know board members who really try to do that. Uh, they're not that, uh, unfortunately, they don't happen that often. But it's something that, you, you know, I'd say you can help teach people, and you should. Sometimes you, you find a limitation and, you know, you really have to make a change. Um, and sometimes other things are issues. But, but I would say that, that you can be more helpful. Yeah. Um, it's another, you know, pick your board more carefully as well. It's, I mean, these things really matter. Um, one of the problems with, you know, the venture world is, is people buy their seats. They don't earn them. You know, and I'm, I'm one of them. You know, it's like, hey, I'm, I'm on your board because I invested X number of dollars or my partners and I put that much in, so I get a board seat. You know, hooray. And who knows if I'm going to give you any value, right? And so, you know, being able to really pick the, the right people um, I think that, that that's a shortcoming. Right. Definitely. Um, okay. So when did you have this, this problem with SEC? You yeah, were telling so, me about this, uh, previously. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I'm very, I want to be very open about that and, and what I can talk about, but you know, so I, so just to give you a little context, so I was doing all this work, private work in, in the area of technology, biotechnology, you know, certain areas, and I, I thought I had a, an understanding of you know, reasonable um, uh, pros and cons in the competitive environment. And I thought I can translate that very easily into a public equity investment fund. And I thought, well, I don't have to do any extra work and I can get capital and fees and it'll be great. Um, what ended up happening is I ended up dealing with someone who was a fraudster. Mm. And he represented to me, he had capital, he had taken it from other people who were non-accredited investors, and he represented it to me as money that I could use for working capital to launch this business. And he didn't follow through on any of his promises, and it ended up being a, a disaster, because essentially I'm the CEO of this business, and there, were, there was investment capital that was misused, and I had no knowledge or intent I assumed it was just working capital I could spend. Well, it, to these other people, it wasn't. They expected it to be invested in the markets. So that created all sorts of difficulty. And Do you think that well, happens more often than we, than we really know? You know, I think, it, I think it does. I think, unfortunately, I think people can be, can be gullible. And um, they see a lot of people making a lot of money. And there are people out there that can make promises because they'll, you know, and and I think it does happen too often. Unfortunately, you know, it, what ends up happening is it happened on a grand scale, you know, the financial crisis. If you look into that, these, they, there were a lot of bad actors on a big scale, right? 
And so unfortunately, I, I will opine that there's this legal environment that says, well, we need to like pick somebody and, you know, kind of make an example of them or whatever. <laughs> and, you know, and I, I, I will say, I mean, there, there are some issues and lessons to be learned. And, and one of the things that, that we talked about was um, when thinking about any business or any opportunity, which is something I didn't do, the first thing to think about is who, right? Who will you do business with? Mm. And this gets into, there's some discussion about, well, think about, well, what are you going to do and how are you going to do it, right? That's kind of the essence of a business plan, right? So what do we do? How do we do it? And then some insightful people came along and said, well, you really ought to think about why you're doing it, right? So you start with why. I mean, there's, there's even I think there's a book, you know, that says start with why. And I know Steve Jobs talked about that. Well, we, you know, we have an understanding of our purpose. Our purpose matters first. And, and I understand that, that that's, that's a priority before you get to what to do and how to do it. But before you even get to that, my point is, and it was a hard learned lesson, my point is understand why, right? And then, under, rather, pardon me, understand who. So who will I do business with? You know, who can I trust? Who brings a certain set of skills, but also values? And, you know, all those elements to like the right team of people, if they then converge on a purpose, you know, here's why we want to do what, here's why we're together. We have a, a goal, a common goal, and the combination of what we believe in, what, who we trust, what our values are, that's going to lead us to find the most effective way to figure out what to do and how to do it. And so that's really, you know, kind of the punchline to, to my personal experience, because I will tell you, um, a, a con man works very effectively because he gives you what you want. Mm. And, and, and you will, and this is one of the problems with, with um, say, entrepreneurship in general, like you have, you know, blinders, like I want to do this. I feel a need to build this business. And sometimes you will just make too many compromises to get there. And most of those compromises don't necessarily cross a legal line, um, but you may not know you're crossing a legal line. Yeah. I mean, I certainly have a, you know, a, a, a tale of caution for anybody. Um, but, you know, even, you know, crossing lines with, with employees, with customers. I mean, we, we hear some of this stuff going on, you know, especially yeah. here in Silicon Valley. And I think that's a very real thing. You know, they're very aggressive. We want to do this. Um, again, you can cross some real lines like they did in Theranos. Um, or, you know, more often, I think, you, you know, you're in this gray zone where maybe that's not so proven out and you kind of do it anyway. Um, and, you know, maybe- Do you feel like uh, a lot of these, uh, a lot of these, these scammers or these uh, fraudsters, do you feel like they're, very they're they're smooth talkers in a sense they're just they're just so good with their words that it just well yeah well you know i guess you know smooth talker almost doesn't capture it because you know what what they tend to be are people who appear very knowledgeable and they they really appear kind of articulate and 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 understand what you're trying to do and kind of tell you what you really want to hear and i mean a smooth talker can kind of get to that but but there are, um, there's even more to it. Right? And I think that, you know, that's, that's one of the real challenges. And, and you know, you've, you've, you know, we've all sat in meetings where we're going, oh, that guy doesn't really know what he's talking about. Um, and that's one thing. 
where they're trying to be smooth, but you know, you press a little bit and there's nothing there. But, but some of these guys, you know, you, you, they benefit from the fact that, you, you know, in my case, I just didn't press enough or I relied on other people. Um, but, you know, we had this case, you know, this poor guy, Bernie Evers, who goes to jail for or sentenced anyway to 25 years because wow. of an accounting fraud. And he's saying, okay, I was the CEO, but I didn't understand the accounting. I, you know, the CFO was the real fraudster. And there's an accounting firm that backed it up with an audit. So what am I supposed to do? Like, I'm, I'm no accountant. I can't say, no, you're wrong. But yet he bears that responsibility. And, and that was, you know, and that's, you know, that's when, you know, hey guys, if you want to think about being a CEO, you know, I was the CEO of a company where I said, look, I bear responsibility for the actions taken on behalf of this company because you have to, that's, that's what you do. And that can lead to some draconian outcomes, right? So, when so in, in most cases, can most CEOs in most cases can, and can go to prison because of the actions of their employees and with, yeah. without them, without them really having knowledge of yeah. what was done. Right. Oh, that's, that's kind of a scary thought. It's a scary thought. And, you know, yeah. and, and, and guys will, will be on the board of directors to a company. Well, you know, you have personal liability for the actions of that company and you can be sued personally for financial losses that the company inflicts as a director. And then there's this criminal activity, you know, they, they, you know, CEO and CFO, you know, you sign for the authentic authenticity of those financial statements. Well, if somebody commits a fraud that you're unaware of, you signed and said, these are authentic and you are taking personal responsibility for them. They can come after you on a criminal charge and you had no knowledge. And they kind of say, well, you should have known, you know, remember that phrase, you Jeez. should have known. And, oh, and boy. you know, you, and you know, you don't get the excuse of saying, well, you know, I didn't know. They're like, well, and then let's go back to my, you know, my history. A guy goes, well, you know, you, you went to Harvard and worked for Goldman Sachs. You should have known. You can't tell us otherwise. And that will be held to you. Right? And you know, hey, you're an engineer, graduated from MIT, or, you know, you're a Stanford computer science major. Come on. You can't tell me that you didn't understand numbers. You didn't understand, you know, what was happening in your own organization. So there was a real risk. And, uh, you know, I'd say, you know, you, you know we, we talk about, and, and it's, it's those hard choices. We talk about the values that we have and the standards that we have. And we'd say we'd never do these kinds of things. But then you find wow. that you trust somebody else who would do those things. And all of a sudden, you know, you've made compromises you would dream of doing. Yeah. yeah um, the, so the people that are, 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 it's funny because I think a lot of executives may distrust people that are trustworthy and then trust people that are not trustworthy. Uh, so, which makes no sense, but you know, it's almost like, it's almost like you, the person that, you know, you, 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 uh, alluded to comp to somebody being in the room and, and, you know, company goes, well, this person doesn't know what they're talking about. Well, it's almost in a sense, you almost have to give that guy more of a chance because, you know, maybe he's just super honest. I don't know. <laughs> well, you know, and, and not like, a, a, <laughs> yeah, well, no, I, I think it, it's true. I mean, go back to the, the financial crisis, right? At both Lehman brothers and Bear Stearns, right? So first at Bear Stearns, the guys who raised the concerns who said, Hey, look, what are you guys doing? This is kind of crazy. This is stuff is way too risky. Those guys got fired. Jesus. And, and the guy at Lehman, at Lehman brothers who came to uh, the CEO 
Uh, and he said, hey, you know, we got to do something now. And that guy got fired. And so you're right. You, you know, the, you, and it's, it's human nature. And I, if there's a punchline to any of this, you cannot escape human nature. So be careful when it will call it your desire to accept the rosy outcome. And don't worry, everything will be fine. And you think, well, I'm giving people the benefit of the doubt. I'm, it's okay. They'll come through. I trust them and all that stuff. Uh, which we'd all like to do. And then when someone comes along and says, hey, you know, this is going badly and you've got you've to face it. Uh, human nature wants us to avoid that. Hmm. And in, the, in these extreme examples, you know, the guys who were the truth tellers lost their jobs. So there's no incentive for anyone else to step up and say, oh, wait a minute, that guy's right, right? So instead, you know, in you know, the financial crisis, you had a handful of outsiders and, and some people that I know who, you know, they just kind of ran the numbers and said, this is insane. And they bet against it and, you know, made a lot of money, obviously. Uh, but That's what the movie Big Short is, is based on. That's right. The Big yeah. Short. Um, and and it, took, it, it usually takes outsiders to figure it out. And just kind of the tale of the entrepreneur in general is you're the outsider. You're the guy that sees something that's an unmet need. You see something happening that the other guys, the incumbents don't want to see, or they see it, but they don't want to make any decisions about it. And, you know, you had the example, you know, talking about the financial crisis, you know, the investment banks who were saying, you know, we just finished selling $20 billion worth of these notes six months ago. And now you're telling me they're worthless. Well, we're not going to, we're not going to go back and say that. Mm. Right? And yeah. well, you know, guess what? Right? And, you know, and I'm, you know, in my personal circumstance, like, well, wait, what, what do you mean? Like, none of this is real. Mm. Uh, it, it's it's very hard to uh, to accept that, uh, and then you know, and I'll say you know, unfortunately, you sit there and go, well, you know, I I had no knowledge, I had no intent, so everything should be fine. Like, well, no, that's not fine. So going back to you, you you bear the responsibility of most things. Why why weren't more people arrested during two thousand eight? That's a really good question that not a yeah. lot of people understand. Yeah. Um, and there are people I've spoken to who work in the legal profession, you know, as prosecutors who've said, you know, we've seen, you know, explicit examples of crime being, you know, that were that crimes that were committed. Right. And, you know, and I don't know if it's, you're too, what, too important to bring down. Um, look, I, I, I don't want to pick on him, but I'm going to pile on a little bit. So Elon Musk committed mm-hmm. securities fraud. He said, he had a buyout arranged at $420 a share for Tesla. He did not. He lied. He manipulated the stock price. And he lied to investors. He lied to the markets. He committed securities fraud. And they had a financial settlement. They, he wrote a big check, I think $50 million. And the company wrote a $50 million check. Well, that's that. Yeah. But, you know, that was a, a pretty grand, that was a crime on a grand scale. I mean, I'm sorry, which is was. Those are the laws, right? Yeah. And then you've got another guy that a couple hundred thousand dollars that, well, I didn't know about that. And like, well, you know, you're, 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 you're a, cr- you're a criminal too. Like, well, okay. All right. You know, so. Why do you think some people get prosecuted uh, more, uh, you know, thoroughly as opposed to, you know, people like Elon Musk, like why, I don't understand why it's, it's, it's everybody, everyone's not treated equally under the law. Well, you know, there you go. That, that is actually the answer. Everyone's not treated equally under the law. And, you know, and I think we, there are personal choices. People say, well, I, 
that's an eat that that guy is an is an easy target. I'll go after yeah. him. That person's not an easy target. If I go after him and I don't succeed, uh, I lose my job. Or that does you know? The, I mean, these people are politicians, unfortunately. So I mean, I you know, I maybe we're all a little bit jaded, but you know, the law, <laughs> politics. You know, we've yeah. gone through an experience where we just saw well, whatever happened, the the first victim was truth and the pursuit of any kind of sense of truth, right? So everything is, is politicized. And, and I think, unfortunately, prosecutors act the same way. They're very political. And they pick something that they think is good for them. Um, and they have, a, you know, they have a media advantage because it's, it's very asymmetrical because they can say whatever they want and you're, you know, you're advised by your counsel, well, whatever you do, don't say anything. So mm. they just make up a story and they, they put it out and the narrative is a nice story, but it's just a narrative that they made up. And then you have no counterbalancing publicity. You can't say, wait a minute, that's not true. Because no. you know, you're advised, well, don't say anything because you know, we've got to deal with a legal process and a judge and all that. So you know, you, you're treated with this asymmetrical information flow and then people then get biased against you. And then you realize I don't stand a chance. And, huh. and people end up making what we call, you know, the least worst decision. It's like, well, nothing's going to be good here, but what's, what's the least, what's the way to minimize the damage? It makes you think, man, like politics is extremely dangerous. Uh, dealing with the law is this extremely dangerous and just don't mess with it at all. Don't mess, don't mess <laughs> with it at all. I'm, I'm here to tell you, don't even think of gray. Don't even think of off white. Yeah, you know it's it's very dangerous. If, I mean, and then it does seem a bit. Like, if somebody wants to come after you, they will. And there's nothing you can do about it. If it, maybe somebody doesn't has an agenda against you, they don't like you for whatever reason, they can yeah. come after you, and it's completely fine under the law. <laughs> like it really is, you know. And, and you know, I think it was what George Bernard Shaw said. You know, just give me uh, you know the most saintly person and thirty minutes of thorough investigation, and I'll I'll deliver you a criminal. No. Oh. You know, it's like, you know, and when you think about, when you think about a standard for fraud, I mean, it's interesting. It's like, well, you promised people something that didn't exist, right? So then, then, then every entrepreneur is a fraudster <clears throat> because, you know, you give me money to deliver, like, let's say, so Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak, give me money and I'll deliver you an Apple computer. It didn't exist. They had to make it. So were they frauds when they took the money? What if mm. they didn't make it? Well, right. it's a small business. Well, yeah, that's it. And we accept that. But the reality is, you know, if I wanted to charge you with fraud, I guess I could because it didn't exist. And you're trying to, you know, you know, you're trying to launch a business and someone's saying, hey, you're saying all these things. Like, well, yeah, they'll, they'll all be in place once I launch. Well, you know, you never launched. Yeah, okay. Well, it didn't happen. Well, you were a fraud. Right. right. Well, yeah. So, did, so when you got in trouble with SEC, were you uh, – were you <laughs> – did, did they adjudicate that you were doing something nefarious at some point or? No, you know, I, you know, I, I just um, settled out. I did a settlement yeah. uh, and it doesn't prevent me from doing any of the work that I normally do. Yeah. That's so, good. Yeah. So that was, you know, and that, that was it. Right. But yeah, it was just the fact that, you know, I, you had to do it. It was like, it was really like, but it's, it's kind of like intense, right? Like you, you're, you're, you're going through this process. You're like, am I, am I going to go to prison because of a mistake somebody else made? Yeah. It's in, it's intense and agonizing. And uh, you know, that's why I'm telling people be very, very careful. And if you think you're being careful, 
be careful some more um, because it, it is all that. And, and, you know, I mean, it's almost like the stages of death, but, but um, you know, when I first got a phone call saying, Hey, I, I mean, I literally thought it was one of my friends paying, playing a joke on me because like this wasn't even, this couldn't be plausible. Right. I mean, it just never, it never occurred to me that it was when actually you- some governmental agency with an issue, like, come on. Right. And so I guess that's my cautionary tale. It's like, you know, um, I had no idea. And I'm telling you that you will have no idea. I mean, if you, if you purposely go out to, to do something, makes you you want, but that's not, who we, that's not your audience, that's not who we are, you'll have no idea. And it will, wow. you know, and, and so, you know, you have to be very, very careful um, about, about all, you know, the way you treat employees. I mean, you know, look what's getting a lot of publicity, you know, the way some of the entrepreneurs are treating employees. And, you know, there's, it, everything's getting a lot of attention. And, and we are even in a more litigious society, but it's, you know, civil and criminal litigation where people were thinking, well, maybe I'm acting aggressive, but I'm not crossing a line. Well, you know, society thinks you're crossing a line. And if society thinks you're crossing a line, whether you think you are or not, that doesn't matter, right? And, oh, boy. You know, and, and one of the things, you know, maybe, maybe to kind of close on this, is to be aware that, that people have lost all sense of nuance, right? So like, you, you're either criminal or not. It's black or white, yeah. You know, and it's like, well, no. Like, well, you know, I, I, you, you gave me some money. I tried to do one thing. It, it really didn't work out. And, you know, we're all big boys here. And that's just what happened. Well, no. Versus, you know, I, I, I raised $50 billion and kept it all for myself, knowing that it was, you know, all a lie. Okay, yeah. that's different. That's not the same thing, right? Yeah. So, can you think? Our, yeah. Can you think of, of, of a circumstance a circumstance that was um, that was not balanced, and maybe one person, you know, did something extremely nefarious, and they didn't get any time, and then somebody that did something very menial, they got no time at all, or they, sorry, they got way more time than the person that did something extremely nefarious. Well, I I actually think if you look at Enron. There's a guy named Andy Fastow who was yeah. the CFO. He was explicitly nefarious. He's a, his actions were despicable. Right. And, and then James Skilling, who was the CEO, who was the CEO for nine months. Skilling had nothing to do with any of the frauds that Andy Fastow committed. And Skilling had audited reports from Arthur Anderson saying everything was fine. And Skilling said, okay, these things are fine. So Skilling got 25 years and Fastow got six years. And I think he was out in four. And, you know, that's really disproportionate. And, um, and I think even, you know, James Skilling just got out recently. And I mean, he still professes his innocence. And, and I don't know the specific of the case any more than what I just described to you, but I absolutely believe, you know, having been a CEO where, you know, guys can do stuff and they can just tell you everything's fine and you just accept it. Because, you know, you got other things to do, right? And, and that's, you know, and I'm not, I don't want to walk back any, any responsibility on my part. I, that, that's something I don't want to do. I, I'm saying it's a responsibility to know what's going on, making sure that it, it meets your standards and your values. And I would say there's no excuse if it doesn't. And right. bear responsibility for that. I think some of the responsibilities can be draconian that they inflict. That's another discussion, right? Right. Um, and I think in the case of James Skilling, I think he was truly, completely unaware. 
Um, and I think Bernie Ebers, again, 25 years, which is a life sentence for him. He, you know, he passed away um, for, for I, I mean, he says, I didn't understand any of this stuff. And I believe him. I, I believe that he, you know, he shouldn't yeah. have gotten the punishment he got. And I, and you know, those are, those are well publicized. And, you know, right now I can't think of any others that, that, you know, kind of fit that, but, but I do believe, well, I mean, there seems to be no doubt, the higher you are in this hierarchy, the more you'll be punished, whether or not you actually committed anything or not. Wow. Um, you know, so some, like some low level finance guy, maybe even your CFO, uh, they can do all of it. But if you're the CEO, you'll be punished more. That, that's what these, these cases have taught us. And I don't think that's going to change because the CEO is a great headline. It like nobody you, knows who Andy Fastow is, but everybody knows who Bernie Evers is and James Skilling. So there we go. That's the, that. That's what we want. We want the headline. These guys are politicians. They're running for office. Right? I mean, you know, well-known politicians now. Right? You know, they were prosecutors at one point. I, I don't think you can separate the the politics, and you can be victimized by those politics. Hmm. Are you not a fan of the law? I'm guessing well, <laughs> of, of how it's run. <laughs> of how it's <laughs> run. It, yeah, of how it's run. You're you're yeah. a fan of the law, but not how it's run. Uh, yeah, and, exactly. I, well, as I would say, you know, the the the, the, the political influence it can can bring about profound injustice, and uh, now I think that like, you know I'll just pontificate for a short moment. We as a society should be concerned with that. That somebody can just pick somebody, have you know headlines, paint them a certain way, and you know inflict real damage, whether or not they survive a process. Was it during that period of time where you were being tried? Is, is, am I saying that right? What were you being? Well, you know, I, I didn't go to trial. Oh, that's right. Okay, so you weren't. You didn't go to trial. Okay, so you you arbitrated uh, before before you went to trial. Right. And okay, okay. So I could I could have been addressing the fact that you were already in a trial and then you just um, you uh, settled for some with with some uh, prosecutor. Um, okay, so during that time. How, how much time was um, um, how much time was there in between you finding out that you, this may go to trial and you arbitrating? How much time? Yeah, about a year. About a year. Okay, a little less, maybe um, ten, maybe nine or ten months. Nine or ten months, and yeah. in that time, it, was it hard to sleep every night? Yeah, it's it's agonizing. Was it? It's 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 torture. And it's, it, I think it's a form of coercion that, you know, you'll do anything to end the pain. I, I, I'm telling you, you'll do anything to end the pain. Do you feel a lot of people going through that process sometimes commit suicide because it's just yeah. so agonizing? I know of a couple people, I don't know them personally, but cases where guys committed suicide. In the Enron case, a guy committed suicide. There was a financial securities issue with a hedge fund in New York a few years ago where one of the guys committed suicide because it's so agonizing. It really is. Uh, can can just, you explain that a little bit more? Like what was, so did you, did, was it just hard to, was it hard to sleep? Or did you just have a knot in your stomach throughout the day? Like all what, of that. I mean, all yeah. of that. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's really terrible. It's akin to a breakup, huh? Terrible, <laughs> terrible experience. And, yeah. you know, and you, um, uh, and again, I, I think it's used, it's a form of coercion. What did you take out of the experience? Like what, after you, you, you yeah, no, realize I, it's not going to be tried. Yeah. Okay. And I, now. Yeah. I think, you know, c coming, coming out of the experience, there's a few things. I mean, 
One is, okay, your reputation has been harmed. Maybe it's irreparable. But all you can worry about is the substance of the person that you are and yeah. focus on who I am and be the best person I can be. I know that maybe that sounds a little corny, but I think it's really true. Kind of control what you can control. So do the right thing. Be the right person. Yeah. Right? It really, you know, it matters. It really matters, right? And, and then the other thing is I talked about, you know, start with who. Like whoever you, whatever you're going to do, right. start with who. And it really makes a difference. So to be clear, to be clear, what happened was you partnered with this guy. He said he had a bunch of. Uh, you know, I probably I don't. I shouldn't talk about the case in any more detail. Oh, oh, gotcha. Okay, I understand. Yeah. Okay, um, no problem. Um, so, so what you learned is, you know, just always focus on who you're working with, and yeah, and and the other thing is, you know, when when understand what you're because if you especially if you're an entrepreneur. We talked about this earlier, you know, it's in your DNA where you want to, you really want to make something happen. Yeah. And I think that those motivations are genuinely pure. Like you, you know, I'm not out for me. I'm for out the to- most part, most people are good people. Most yeah. people. Yeah. Most and that's people what, people. And, right. and most people understand that. And that's why they get tricked because right. then the person that comes around goes, they know that they know that most people are good people. Right. And so you can trick people more easily. Exactly. And, and one of the things I, I uh, even for me, the people I did business with most of my career, we did it on a handshake. And I, I've had, I've partnered with firms that have invested tens of millions of dollars on a handshake. And it's like, yeah, the documentation will come later. And, you know, I knew them well, they trusted me, I trusted them, everything, you know, things worked out. Um, and so you kind of, unfortunately, because most people are good people, and I had the experience of all the people I worked with were really great people in terms of values and character. And they, yeah. you know, we all trusted each other. So then if somebody enters that environment, you know, you default to the way you've treated everyone else and thinking that that's how you're going to be treated. And that's sort of a cautionary tale that I have for people, which is to think about um, if you want something really badly and your motivations are pure and you really know that, most people are good people, yet um, if somebody wants to take advantage of that, they simply can. And, you know, kind of a punchline here is people do things because it's the right thing to do. Some people do things because they have the legal right to do them. Some people do them because they have the power to do them. And some people do them because, like, well, I can just do this and get away with it or try to. And understand what's really happening. And mm-hmm. I think that was – you know, that, that, that's, that's a worth, that's something else I learned, right? It's like, well, to think about, well, what's motivating this person? He's, you know, says he wants to be part of a bigger business. Like, you know, why? Like, what's going on? What, you know, and I think delving into that and understanding the other side can really help you too. So um, mm. I think I, yeah. you know, learn, learn some of those, those lessons as well. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. So what I gather from you is like, you're just a, you're no, a normal guy that got caught up in, um, you know, activities that put you in a bad light, but you didn't, you weren't really responsible for them and you just got caught up in it and, and it can happen to anyone and it almost makes you think like, should you grow, should you grow a big business or should you even, fo- if, should you even, should that even be your focus? Because maybe it's, 
I mean, it's really, really stressful, it seems. Um, well, you know, it can be, and I, but I do want to make one thing very clear. Yeah. I mean, taking responsibility for all the actions that occurred. You know, I'm the CEO. I am responsible. Right. And, you know, and I believe that that's a standard that everyone should, should have. And so given that, I think maybe know what you're really doing. If you're launching uh-huh. a business, especially if you're a CEO, recognize you are taking responsibility for all the actions. You, you know, your values are, uh, are on the line. Mm-hmm. Uh, they should permeate your organization. Um, and you should understand the values of the people you work with. Um, was, your, was your case a headline in the media? Was it just like something that was just put out there like crazy? And just went, well, I don't think it was. Yeah. I mean, I think they, you know, somebody covered it. I don't think it was a big story. I'm not, Got it. I'm not that interesting person. <laughs> yeah. Got it. Cool. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, let's say somebody, you know, wants to converse with you, um, potentially an entrepreneur or investor wants to converse uh-huh. with you. How, how would they do so? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I do have a, a website for, you know, the business that I have, which is Arcadia Capital Group. So Arcadia Capital Group. Um, and I'm, my, and contact information is there. You can email, you know, general email, but you know, I think my email is there, uh, as well as the phone number. And, um, I'm, I'm happy to have people, you know, contact me. Um, I, you know, I mean, I, I, I think fundamentally I, I would like to help as many people as I can. I think the other thing that came out of this is I, you know, want to help, uh, mentor or teach whatever I can do coach. Um, so they, you know, they can, you know, reach the website and, and contact me there. Maybe what you went through, you know, was a blessing in, in a sense, because it maybe made you a better person overall. Well, you know, I think, look, I think there's two, uh, there's two things to say about that. I think one is um, you control how you feel about things. Right? Right. right. I mean, that Victor Frankl wrote a great book about finding the meaning in life. And he said, look, your attitude is the one irreducible thing no one else can change. Right? Right. So how you feel about it. Sure. And so you can take it yeah, as a real blessing, right? And you can really say, "Oh, let me let me learn from this, uh, and let me help others," right? And which I think is maybe even more important. Uh, and I think about that: how can I help others? And and that's what matters to me more than anything right now. Um, and I think the other thing, and this is, uh, you know, someone I love has actually shared this with me. She said, "Well, look, you want to look back on this and be proud of how you handled it." Hmm. And I think that's a really great perspective to have, no matter what happens to you. Look, you know, even if somebody like bumps into your car on the way home, right? You step out yeah. and yell, you can yell and scream and do whatever, right? But are you really going to be proud that that's how you handled it, right? I'm a b- believer that, you know, no matter how bad you damage your reputation, you can always get it, you can always get it back. Um, but there, to some extent, you know, it's, oh, it's damaged forever, but uh, some, some, people some people's actions can damage their reputation forever but i think you, for the most part you can you can gain it back yeah and i and I, I think that that consistent with that is you know the thing that you can control you can control who you are and the substance of the person you are and what other people think or you know that's what they think of you but that's not who you are and right. but the more you are something the more other people will come to realize well that's who you are so i i, I think you know the uh, again, I have that, that real belief that no matter what I do, it's like, well, is this who I am? Right. And I think maybe that's kind of the punchline to this whole discussion. No matter what you do, recognize 
that you should filter it through, is this who I am? Right? And if you're going to, I'm, I'm gonna just going to deal with some guy making crazy promises. Is that who I am? Mm-hmm. I'm going to you know, go after a, 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 develop a business, which I don't really feel passionately about, but I think I can make money from it. Is that who I am? Mm-hmm. Uh, do I want to be in, the, you know, all of that. I, I think I, I do that a lot. I think it's a, that is maybe the single best lesson from all of it. No matter what you do, is this who I am? Um, right. So that's, that's, that's kind of my, uh, Give me that the closing statement. <laughs> well, well, thanks for sharing the the uh, the story and and your insights on business and life, and really appreciate it. And uh, you know, look forward to potentially doing another podcast and maybe talking about other uh, concepts and ideas. Well, thank you very much. I really enjoyed my time with you. Thank you.